Welcome to Cutting Edge Web Content Development, the podcast where we delve into the world of CMS systems and their crucial role in website and web content development. In each episode, we'll explore the reasons why founders, CEOs, CTOs, and CMOs of web content development companies need CMS systems to thrive in the digital landscape. Get ready to uncover the secrets behind successful website management, content creation, and seamless user experiences. Here's your host, Jonathan Ames. Welcome to Cutting Edge Web Content Development, a podcast by Better CMS. Here we share insights on the intersection of content and web development and how you can align these two often competing forces to improve efficiency and business results. Joining us on this episode, we have an expert in SEO, Malte Landvar. He is a head of SEO at Idealo in Berlin, and he's responsible for various e-commerce websites across Europe. Welcome, Malte. Really excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your career background and how you got into SEO, some of the work you've done. So how I got into SEO is really by accident. When I was, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, I think 14, I had like an internet forum that I was running to talk to my friends at school. And at some point, somebody registered in this forum whom I hadn't told the URL. And I was like, how did this person find us? And then I realized we were ranking on Google and I started to get into that. I was a nerd already as a kid. So I, I started reading things, experimenting. And yeah, at some point I learned that having a website about where the best party is happening is maybe not the way to make money. And I started creating pages on hotels in my hometown and vacation rentals in my hometown. And uh, from there it just uh, happened that I stumbled into, into SEO. And then I studied computer science. I, I thought I would do my PhD. I actually started it, started teaching at university, but realized it's not what I want to do. It, it just wasn't my pace, I would say. And then I, I co-founded an SEO agency. I worked in management consulting for a year. So I learned how to very efficiently create PowerPoint slides that can be read in a, on a BlackBerry in the back of a limousine by somebody who makes decisions that way. That was always the goal. And then I spent five years at um, Searchmetrics, a software company for SEO, did a lot of client work, was also also development work. In the end, I was I was VP product. And yeah, now I'm at, at Idealo, the probably largest price comparison network in Europe. And up until very recently, I always had a ton of websites of my own, either running them completely on my own or with freelancers. But I stopped doing that a while ago. And uh, there were one or two startups in between whom I'm helped. I think this is called being a broke angel when you get a few shares for, for doing the work, not for bringing in money. And that's a bit of my, my background uh, for SEO. And so I try to bring the management consultant perspective that's really good for C-level communication and the product management con uh, perspective that's good for actually implementing results and the SEO knowledge together. And I would say that's what I'm doing. You know, Malte, I don't think I've ever met an SEO out there, a professional SEO who's learned it in a university. It's because there really isn't a university degree for SEO. Two and a half years ago, I hired the first person who actually studied SEO. There is a university in France where you can get like a two-year degree in SEO once you have your bachelor's degree. I think it's like something you do on top. There are now a few, but yeah, it's, it's incredibly rare. Yeah, it's rare. Usually you do it, like you said, through experimentation and learning. Or, you know, there's some online classes now that are, are being offered. But uh, 
yeah, very, uh, very much the beginning of SEO as a discipline. And so, uh, yeah, you're one of the pioneers there. So this is something that fascinated me when we were originally talking, we talked about the idea of SEO kind of sits in between marketing and product and development. It's kind of a gray area at many corporations. And so let me start off our strategy discussion by saying, where does SEO belong? Is it the marketing department, the product department, or somewhere else in between? There is a standard answer that SEOs always give, no matter what's the question, and it's it depends. And this is true here. So there are companies where SEO is just another marketing channel. Maybe it's not even a top three channel. I don't know, Lego, Douglas, General Motors, like these companies that have other ways of selling their product than through their own website, that sometimes have even sales networks that work with partners. For them, it's never going to be the number one thing that makes or breaks the company, right? And honestly, it belongs in marketing. And I would treat it like a performance marketing channel, which can mean that the company fails at it so much and so often that at some point you don't fund it anymore. I mean, of course, as an SEO, it breaks my heart to say it, but I think there are companies that should treat SEO like a performance marketing channel that sits in marketing. And if it doesn't get results, then it will never be a priority. It will never be the team where the CMO asks once a week, hey, do you need something? And then the opposite are teams where SEO is definitely the number of uh, companies where SEO is the number one marketing channel or number two or three channel where it's like a core component of the whole go-to-market strategy. These are typical aggregators, like websites that aggregate anything from other websites. It can be e-commerce aggregators, news aggregators, price comparison websites, also social network sites that have a lot of content, uh, something like Reddit, Skyscanner, Booking, Amazon, eBay, that belongs in the product team because the SEO secret is the is this inventory to use it for SEO, right? The, the SEO secret is not five very good blog articles that somebody wrote. Those are maybe a cherry on the top, but probably not relevant. And the whole SEO challenge there is how do we identify the good content, like for booking.com, for which cities and filter combinations do we have a landing page? For Skyscanner, for which flight routes? For Reddit, maybe which topics that are posted about should be visible for Google and what is probably low-quality content? That is the challenge. And SEO is all about identifying this and, and unlocking the potential, basically. And then it belongs in product. And uh, another view you could have is if... A website is created for the product or about the product and there are dedicated SEO landing pages, then it probably belongs in marketing. If the product that the company is working on is the website, again, something like a booking.com, a skyscanner, where everything is basically an SEO landing page, then it should be in product. And, and another way to think about it that leads to the same result is if SEO for a company is mainly content marketing. Yeah, if it's all about understanding the target audience and creating editorial content for them, something that Buffer, for example, did when they started or HubSpot, then it should go in marketing. If it's technical SEO, if it's about indexation rules, how to make 5 million products visible for Google, then it should go into product. This is how I would see it. There are always exceptions. But this is like roughly the framework I would always recommend to use. Yeah, it's a great framework. I think it uh, shows 
you know, where is the importance of SEO in your business operations? And if, if it is a key thing in your, like you said, your inventory, your product is generating that SEO, uh, then yes, that should be something that you use as a competitive advantage in product. Whereas otherwise, like you said, it's a performance channel and you try it out and you hope that you're able to be competitive there, but you may or may not, depending upon the particular niche you're in and how competitive it is. Great framework there. So switching gears, let's talk now about what everyone has been talking about in 2023, which was AI. And now let's try applying that to the SEO landscape. How is AI going to change or how has it already started changing the SEO landscape? Yeah, I think that's the million dollar question, right? Whoever knows the answer now already can probably get very rich. And I think there are, there are two separate questions. So the first is, is Google going to be the gateway to the internet? Is Google going to be the thing where I start my journey? Is it going to be a chat GPT, a perplexity AI, one of these tools, right? I think that is the first big question where nobody knows the answer yet. And if it's no longer Google, if 50% of people don't go with their questions, their informational needs, their navigational desire to Google, but somewhere else, everything changes, absolutely everything. Probably SEO will then no longer be relevant for this 50% of people who ask questions. And there are terms like GEO, which means generative engine optimization, or GAIO, generative AI optimization. Both basically mean the same. What can you do to your website to make sure that the system like ChatGPT, Bing Chat, Perplexity AI gives you as the answer or at least cites you as the source for the answer? Because the very, very big difference is in Google, right now, for most questions I can type into Google, the answer is still a list of links. Maybe there are lots of ads on top, but these are essentially also links. You just pay for them. And if you scroll or use an ad blocker, you can still see these blue links. But with a chat GPT or the version of the Bing chat that you can already use, this is just not the case. The only thing as an SEO you can do is you can try to be cited as the source. And there were some, some research, some studies from a couple of companies, Onely, Ziptie, and Authoritas did studies. These are companies in the SEO space and a group of universities did a research and they found out if you have a lot of sources and you cite them properly, you are more likely to show up. If you use quotes, makes it more likely that the AI system thinks you are the good source. If you add statistics, if you make content like understandable, readable, some other things, right? These things you can do to make your website more likely to be a source cited by LLMs. This is very similar to SEO. Basically, you reverse engineer a little bit, you try things, and then you make changes to the website. That's how all SEOs had to start like 15, 20 years ago. But there are things that are just obsolete. So for example, with Google, we care about content quality. We try to only show Google our quality pages. For a system like ChatGPT, I can probably just give it billions of content pages if it trusts my website enough to, to digest them all. And it might also become very important to do things like native advertising, influencer marketing, buying reviews, astroturfing, like astroturfing is uh, an artificial grassroots movement to basically have positive content about your product on other websites, right? Because ChatGPT and co, they are not completely stupid. They will not go to Ford.com, where it says Ford is the best car. And they were like, oh, yeah, 
the Ford F250 is the best car. But if you have a, pay a lot of influencers to say it in their videos, maybe you don't care about legal restrictions and they don't even market as advertisement. Probably NII system would be more likely to believe that, right? If you look at how LLMs form knowledge, quote unquote, it's not really knowledge, but let's not go too deep into the, the LLM area. You, you can influence this more outside of your website and on your website. And, and the second question is, will search engines maybe remain, but will they give the answer in a different way? Like Google is testing these, they call it SGE, Search Generative Experience in the US and actually in many countries nowadays, where you can opt in and then for some percentage of keywords, like I think like 40% of keywords just show you an AI answer by default. And then depending on which study you trust, 30 to 70% of keywords at least say generate response above the normal search. Then probably a lot of traffic will go away for websites unless you are the source. But then these, these panels that Google generates, they have up to 39 sources. Nobody's going to click on all 39 links up there, right? So, and there was a test where 80% of keywords that contain Amazon have an AI answer. So even if I search for Amazon return policy, Amazon running shoes for women, Google doesn't send you to Amazon. Google creates a very big AI answer. So you are, you're losing your own brand traffic even in Google. And if this happens, probably we can do some of the same things I just mentioned for to manipulate a chat GPT, other AI system, right? It's, it's very similar. But reality is, I think a lot of SEOs will just lose their traffic and, and websites will have to see how they can still get traffic out of Google. I think Google's been training us in this way for a while by already starting you know, several years ago to put the answers to questions right in the search results, as well as, you know, training us with prompts with the, you know, people also ask and here's some other questions you might want to, you know, use to refine your search. So certainly I think we're moving in that direction. I know when I've gone to at least the marketing side conferences talking about AI in SEO, the main questions that I've heard from other marketers are, if we use AI content, will we be penalized by Google? Because Google has made rumblings about that. And what are going to be the copyright and legal ramifications of such content? And I think there's still a lot of uncertainty in that from the brand side and from the marketing side. As far as users, I don't know that yet that there's been any other solution besides Google, although certainly something like that could pop up that might be easily usable, like on a cell phone, kind of like you would with Google Maps or uh, Google or Siri, where you ask a question through voice. Interesting. It'll be really interesting to see how that happens over the next few years. So great insights there with that. Let's switch over to the tactical side. So how would somebody be able to use AI safely in their SEO tasks today <laughs> without too much worry? Yeah, I mean, the safely part is not the easiest to answer. Google used to have it in their guidelines that you are not allowed to use AI content. It was considered pure spam. This was a time when some people had access to GPT-2, but GPT-3 wasn't out. Very shortly after ChatGPT took off, Google removed the sentence and they worded it differently. Because the reality is there are content formats that even now, like for the past five, six years, have been created not by advanced AI systems, but have not been written by humans. Making heavy use of templates, examples are for almost every um, stock index, 
if you go to Google News and type that in, like, I don't know, from Germany, the MDAX or the S&P 500 from the US, the Nikkei, many, many others, you will find a couple of articles that are less than one hour old and talk about the movement of the biggest stocks in the last 60 minutes. These are not written by humans. These have not been written by humans for the past five, six years. Another example is that I saw somebody had a database of all historical soccer matches in Europe. They knew exactly at what minute was a goal scored, a foul, etc., etc. They created articles out of this. There is no way that a human would sit down and write articles for every single soccer match in every single year for every single country in Europe. There are a lot. Like for our international viewers, there's like multiple leagues in every country and they play a lot of games per year. Or another example is, and this isn't even online content, this is offline content, when you have a catalog of, I don't know, sandals and you have five sandals, you can write five product texts about five sandals. But there are retailers that have 5,000 sandals. They will never write and a human. It would be torture for a human to write it. And if you read it, you would realize at some point that the person gave up and just did copy paste and replaced a few words, right? And these are instances where AI content is totally fine. Yeah. Also, when you are talking about the weather in your city today, it is totally fine to, to summarize this data with an AI to write one or two sentences. And this has been fine for a long time. This is fine right now. There are websites that do it that works. Where it becomes more of a gray area is, I can go to ChatGPT and I can say, please write an article about SEO for WordPress. Probably it's going to be an okay-ish article because there's enough in the training data and I could publish that and I can put my name under it and I can probably write a thousand articles per day like this. And there are websites where this is working very well for a short amount of time. But of course, I'm probably not actually fact-checking every single article. I'm probably at some point going to publish something that is wrong. and. Again, for some tutorial type content, this might still be fine. Like, I don't know, how do I put gas in a Ford Explorer? How do I put gas in a Dodge Ram? Probably you have enough data to create reasonably good short articles on these questions for every car in the world. But if it's something like, what experiences did you have when you took a certain cancer medication? You can create AI article about it, but the person who's searching for that, they do not want to reach an AI article. They don't even want to read an article from a doctor. They want to reach an article from a person who has experienced it. And this is why Google in their quality rater guidelines introduced this concept of experience, expertise, authoritativeness, trustworthiness. And if you are in one of these areas where it's about what do I do with my money? What do I do with my health? People probably don't want an AI text. And even if you can rank with it right now, probably Google is working on making sure they don't serve people AI content. Google introduced a feature in the US, it's called Perspectives, where they specifically highlight content from YouTube Shorts, Reddit, Quora, TikTok, because they know there is a demand from people for human-created content. And they want it verifiable that it's coming from a human. And my, my favorite study on this was an app where that was acting a little bit like a, like a therapist. Like you could talk about your problems and it would write in a very encouraging way. And people 
felt more encouraged when talking to an AI than when chatting with a human because the AI was better at playing their own words back to them with a little bit positive, encouraging spin. It was better than the human volunteers who worked on the app. But when they told the people, by the way, you talk to an AI, the effect went negative. Everybody felt betrayed. People previously said, oh, I felt hurt. I felt validated as a human. But when they learned it was just an AI, it was negative. So there are some things where people want to at least believe this is a human talking to them. And so for like content creation, I would be cautious. Where I personally use AI for SEO is honestly not different than probably many other professionals using AI. I use it for brainstorming and developing ideas. Like when I'm unclear, I just start talking to ChatGPT and it's probably just the advanced version of the rubber duck. I don't know if everybody's familiar. If you have a problem, just grab a rubber duck and explain the problem to the rubber duck. And very often you will be like, wait a minute, like there's an obvious solution. And ChatGPT is just the same, but on steroids because it asks a couple of questions. It summarizes, you can ask it for feedback. I use it to improve my writing. Like sometimes I write something and I feel like this should be more professional or this should be more casual. Also, sometimes I write in a language that's not my native language. For example, English is not my native language then it can be helpful just to get a little bit of feedback from ChatGPT. And I sometimes conduct research. Like if I have complex questions, so I would have to click around a lot in Google, there are something like ChatGPT can help a lot. And what I would recommend to people is if you need to just summarize some data points or summarize content that you already have, you can use AI. It's no problem. If you want to change the style of content. So for example, you have a lot of formal product descriptions. And now you want to make them a little bit more informal. AI can do that. You should still read it. Google will not penalize you for it. And if you really want to go the direction of creating a lot of content with AI, which is a gray area, it can be really worth it to invest a couple of hours into a very good prompt. There are some people I'm working with um, where I didn't like some of the prompts that I was seeing. And I spent, I think, one afternoon developing a very holistic, very long prompt and after months it's still in use now like people just copy it adapt it because it's really worth it to invest the time and i also like to remind people if your content strategy is to go to chat gpt and type write a product description for the iphone 15 that is something that everybody in the world can do and it takes them less than one minute and even if you spend five minutes to say, please write a product description for the iPhone 15 with the target audience, white middle-aged man in America, and make it so that they want to buy the product and be positive and use an informal tone and have a playful voice, etc., etc. Still, everybody can do that. And probably somebody else will invest one minute more to write a slightly better prompt. And if your whole content strategy is just this, it can work right now very, very well. There are some very smart SEOs making a lot of money right now. But I almost want to put quotation marks around the word SEOs because you could also call them spammers. But this cannot be your long-term content strategy, at least not for SEO. And I would try to look for a way to use AI to enhance something about your brand that is unique, something that cannot be copied. And that is not an easy task for every company. Right now, I mean, I think the most, the safest and uh, most innovative way I've seen AI used right now, there's uh, 
a gentleman who does copywriting at a ad agency. And what he has invested time in is creating a large language network model based on his own content, his own ads that he's written. And he's created these prompts that basically allow him to create variations on ads. So with say Google ads, often you want to test several variations. So he basically created these prompts to go through his own work, use that as his basis, and then simply create uh, ad variations for him. So he'll create a base ad and say to the prompt, create variations on this ad based on my previous writings. And it spits these out for him. It just saves him time. Uh, so it, yes, it's creating variations, which I guess is similar to what you were saying with brainstorming, but brilliant use. He, he does it all through a, a Google sheet and macros. <laughs> One very good thing I've seen is I recently talked to an agency and they said one of their new clients, they just created a custom GPT with like JetGPT, where they put in their brand handbook, some of the brand collateral from the central product marketing team. And now all the marketers in the company and also their agencies can talk to the system and say, do you find anything in the brand guidelines that makes these 15 claims not possible or can I do this in Spain, for example? And then it will try to look at all reference material and highlight, well, you use a certain word here that we don't want to use, these kinds of things. Or the tone is not playful because sometimes brand guidelines are not, they're not binary, right? I mean, you can check for color, that's very easily. But what is a playful tone? How do you verify that across 50 different languages? And that is something where an LLM is probably better than most humans. And you would need a big group of humans to check playfulness in your brand language across 50 languages. Yeah, and it's certainly faster. Well, let me switch now to uh, some other changes with SEO. Tactically, if you're trying to search, you know, the, the ways to measure SEO's changes, especially we talked earlier about using the term headless SEO, you know, how do you measure those? How would someone go out and see what are the effects of you know, voice search or AI or some of these other uh, ways that search is being done. What are some some tips there? Maybe we step one step back, just make sure every reader knows what we mean with the, with the headless SEO, right? The traditional SEO approach is I have a website, it has content, it's essentially an HTML document, and I can optimize everything in one place, right? I can put a title, I can change the content, make the website faster. And with headless SEO, it basically means I have an ecosystem with a headless CMS where I have a central repository of my content, and then I need to do SEO on various points where this is released. And that brings, of course, some complexity with it because you see a database with text, but you don't know what it will look like on the final website, in the app, in the support center. So that's often important to think about the design already at the beginning, include a spe specific field in the whatever is the central data repository of the headlet CMS solution for meta robots, canonical, open graph tags, language, et cetera, et cetera, like lots of things. Don't want to go too much into detail there. But when it comes to the measuring, actually, it's almost the same. Because if one of the formats where it's published is a traditional website that is visible in a browser, it can be crawled by Google, you can use all the normal SEO success measurements. You can look at rankings, you can look at traffic, you can look at revenue, you can look at all these tools that measure SEO visibility like SEMrush, Ahrefs, Systrix. Where it gets more difficult and 
maybe headless SEO is here not the right term. Maybe like omni-channel SEO is, is the more familiar term. Is like on the one hand non-owned entities, something like my CEO published an article on LinkedIn Pulse and it's also ranking in Google or we have a Google business profile or formerly Google My Business profile and we are ranking in Google Maps. This is more difficult, right? There are sometimes specialized tools for it. There is no one fits all solution. And if you think it one step further, for some brands, it might then also be interesting If I asked Siri about my product, does it say something positive? If I search in the Apple App Store for a generic term that describes my app, does my app rank? I just need a ton of special tools for these. And every company should think about what is it that they actually need and, and try to build a toolbox around that. There is unfortunately no single tool that measures holistically about all across all these points about Seven years ago, I worked with a U.S. company when I was in search metrics who once a week asked employees in different locations, different offices to drive to certain locations, use the anonymous version of their browser, search for certain terms and take screenshots. And then they would put these screenshots in an Excel sheet with the date and the location. And that would be sent to the head of SEO who cared about mobile SEO because they wanted to know, is there a screenshot in Google to install my app? Because back then, no tool could do it. And since no tool could do it, almost nobody could properly optimize for it. And I mean, she spent probably thousands of dollars in terms of salaries, money for gas, for employees to just in the middle of the day, drive somewhere on company time, take a screenshot, drive back. And nowadays, there are tools for that. You, you don't have to do that anymore. It can be an advantage, right? It can be a competitive advantage to optimize something that's hard to measure. But yeah, I can't give any advice for that would fit every company there. You really need to know where to do it. What is important is that no matter how good the content is in your central repository, when you have such a headless approach, you need some form of quality assurance, monitoring, alerting on the final thing, because Google does not care at all what is in your database. Google cares what content does your website give to the Googlebot. And if there's something wrong, if instead of the title, you show the first paragraph again, where you should show the list with the product details, you accidentally put the review summary, you need to monitor that regularly and, and check it. So that is the maybe unsatisfying answer to, to how to deal with monitoring for headless SEO. No, that, that's the truth. Well, good point. You know, there are, there have been developed several tools to go after some of these niche measurements in these areas to measure. Let's get to the last point here on the tactic side. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that are still out there about SEO right now? I think outside of SEO, so on the decision maker level, The biggest misconception is that you can just add SEO after the fact. That is true for some companies, but if the product of your company is a website, SEO must be baked into the product process, which means it must be involved in discovery, creating roadmaps, creating prior priorities for the year, for the quarter. Um, that is, I think, the biggest misconception there. Then if I look at people practicing SEO, I think there are two big misconceptions that many like beginners or intermediaries have. And one is there's a very large group of people who think SEO means writing blog articles. And that is true for these cases where you try to add SEO after the fact. And it can actually work for some local 
I don't know, a local gas station, they can get better rankings by just adding a block. The question is, is it their number one marketing channel? But it's a different topic. But it doesn't work for a large brand. Often it's a low value or zero value activity to just add a block, right? You need to, to optimize the core product. And the second misconception is that there are things that are not direct ranking factors, but might still be good for your website. So for example, today's SEO Twitter scandal or X scandal, as I now have to say, was that a Google employee said having an author byline is not a ranking factor. And that is probably true if Google says it. And I don't think anybody thought Google would go to a website and check Does it have an author byline? If yes, it's a good website. If not, it's a bad website. But if you think about the fact that Google wants to serve people websites that people think are trustworthy, authoritative, have expertise, have experience, then for many topics, having an author byline is probably what people expect. So while it's not a direct ranking factor, it doesn't mean that you should delete it tomorrow just because somebody at Google said it's not a ranking factor. And I think... This is a misconception that many people have that if it's not a direct ranking factor, it's not worth doing. But the reality is Google is trying with all their ranking factors to emulate if people would like a website or not. And if you just do what is best for people, maybe it's not something Google can measure now, but it is what Google will try to measure next month, next year. And it is not wrong to do things that are not direct ranking factors. I think that's the big misconception within the SEO community that I encounter on a very regular basis. I think that was the, the key behind the whole customer experience CX movement was to try to create something that was a good experience, whether that's online or outside of it. And if you create a good experience, like you said, even if it's not a direct factor, it may be something that happens later on. I mean, a good example of that years ago, Google never said that, you know, hey, keywords, when keywords were really a big thing, inside of text or videos was something that would be ranked. However, people experimenting around found that actually, yes, it did have an impact on rankings because people, if that's something they're searching in and they see it there visually in an image or in a video, and yeah, they say, okay, great, this is relevant to me. So it's, it's understanding what is it that are the relevance markers that a user would have and recognizing a site and trying to create those and a good experience. Great concepts there. So let me ask you a couple personal things about it, your own career. If you could go back in history, go back in time, meet yourself right out of university, what bit of advice would you give yourself outside of buying particular stocks or Bitcoin? I was actually going to say buy Bitcoin, which is quite sad because I discovered Bitcoin as a topic quite early. Just I never thought about buying any. And the same happened with Ethereum. And I, yeah, I, I, I was not uh, enough after money when I was young, unfortunately. I think, honestly, I would give myself the advice to, if something works, just double down on it and scale it. Because when I was young, what I did a lot was find out if a tactic works or not. And then I got bored. Or I was afraid that this is not going to work forever. This can't be possible that this works forever. But then it ended up working for another five years and I could have probably made a lot of money. So this is not the advice I would give myself today because nowadays Google actually is good at catching most spam rather quickly. But that would actually have been the advice I've given myself. So no, if I were to go down that SEO route again and not go into crypto and get, get rich very young, I, I would actually do a lot of things uh, uh, the same because I, I always took good experiences out of it. Like for my failed PhD thesis, I still know a lot about 
graph theory and how to actually analyze network data structures. Um, from my short stint in management consulting, I still have a lot of PowerPoint knowledge and how to get executive buy-in. So actually all, this, all the mistakes I made or all the things I started that were not for me, I took a lesson out of them. So I wouldn't have the big changing advice uh, if I'm not allowed to talk about stocks or crypto. That was good. Well, where do you now find your inspiration? You know, are there any books or podcasts or conferences, things that you found inspirational? Yeah. So I actually, I follow people on Twitter and, and LinkedIn who talk about SEO and I spend quite a lot of time reading it. Since I've been doing that for years, I can quickly thought the noise from the actually relevant things. So I don't want to blindly recommend people to just follow a ton of SEO influencers because honestly, not so much is happening in SEO, but people who have to create content every day will invent things that are seemingly relevant. So if you don't want to go on a tangent and, and just explore random things that turn out to be nothing, don't just blindly follow all the SEO influencers. I think for learning, there's a very good website, learningseo.io from Aleda Solis. There are free resources for everything. And I would rather recommend people to learn all of the basics there than trying to learn something new that somebody discovers tomorrow because something that was discovered yesterday might not be relevant in a month, but something that's been on that learning path for a year will, will probably also be relevant. Um, it's a little bit similar to, to the, my approach to books. Like if you only read books that have been relevant for 200 years, probably they're going to be relevant uh, for the future. Whereas when you read a lot of books that are hyped this year, nobody might care about them uh, next year. And then it really depends on which, which direction you want to go into. So if somebody was into like more the digital PR and content marketing side of SEO, I think following uh, Carrie Rose is very, very good approach. Uh, she's the founder from, from Rise at Seven, an agency in the UK that recently moved to the US. She has a lot of interesting stuff. If you are into product management for SEO, there's uh, Adam Grant, very, very smart person. But my main advice there is actually follow product managers. If you want to learn about product management, like people like Teresa Torres, uh, John Cuttlefish, Marissa Perry, like these kinds of people. From them, you can probably learn more about product management than apply that to SEO than, than any SEO influencers. Yeah. And of course, follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Great. Tell us how people can uh, get in touch with you or tell us about Idealio and uh, you know, how can they get in contact with you? If people care about my opinion on SEO, then really LinkedIn and Twitter are the places. LinkedIn for a bit more formal stuff, Twitter also for like shorter thoughts. I mean, Idealo is a price comparison website active in a lot of European markets. So if you are in the e-commerce space and want to sell products without paying too much money to Google for Google Shopping, go to idealo.com and, and sign up. There's <laughs> no need to talk to me. And yeah, I also respond to direct messages and friend requests on, on LinkedIn. Malta, really appreciate all of your time and giving us some insights from your career insights about SEO, about some of the things going on with AI right now. All really great insights. Appreciate those. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for the really insightful questions. Cutting Edge Web Content Development is brought to you by Butter CMS. To find out how you can build better with Butter, stop wasting dev time and free your marketers from your legacy CMS, visit buttercms.com. 
Also, make sure to search for Cutting Edge Web Content Development in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Butter CMS, thank you for listening.